Hey guys, Jen Bruno Smith here from the High Rollers Club. I'm here with Nino Batista. It's so good to see you. How are you? I'm doing good. Good to see you again. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, thanks for coming. I know you're really busy, so I really appreciate, you know, that you took the time to talk with us. And, you know, we have a lot of photographers that listen to this podcast, but there's a lot of people, too, that, you know, aren't necessarily in the boudoir world or maybe new to photography. So uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, like what you do, just like a quick blurb I would love to just kind of introduce yourself to our audience a little bit. Absolutely. Um, Well, most of the time when I get asked this question, um, the question is, how long have you been shooting? I'll start with that. Um, It's a weird answer because I grew up with photography with my dad. So I've had it since I was a little kid. However, the see, but the photography for me was what what dad did. You know, so I was a graphic designer and a musician for many years. Um, Did a lot of Photoshop work throughout the 90s. Again, graphic design and musician. So finally, 2008 or nine, I got into photography and my dad was like, oh, finally. I mean, I was, you know, 33, 34 years old. And I finally decided to let me see what this is all about. Got some equipment. And so I've been shooting in earnest for about 10, 11 years, but, um, but grew up with it because of my dad. However, what I shoot, getting into glamour, getting into boudoir and all that, that came from my now ex-wife. But when we were married, she wanted me to shoot her. So I shot her and the rest is history. That's why I went that direction. It seems really obvious. Oh, of course you went to shoot pretty women because that's what men like. It seems so token, but uh, really there's like a, a genuine interest in there for me. So that's the short, the really, really brief story, but I've been in photography all my life, been about 10 years focused. And, uh, and because of my graphics background, um, I'm really, really obsessed with retouching. Yeah. So I love I doing that. I didn't know how to retouch photos before yeah. I started this, but uh, being a Photoshop user for so long, it was very natural. So I'm a retouching nerd. Yeah, and you're so good at it. So how we met, we met back in 2016 at the AIBP retreat. And AIBP, for you know those of you that haven't heard of it, it's the Association of International Boudoir Photographers. And it's this great little circle of um, very talented boudoir photographers. And every year they have a conference and you were speaking there and speaking about retouching. And so we've known each other, I've known you for, you know, quite a few years. You probably just like really actually met me like last year, this year. <laughs> no, I remember. I remember. I've known who you are for a few years, but I just remember you had this amazing frequency separation action and I still use it. Uh, Good. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. Things have changed a little bit since then because in, in 17, the ending of 17, um, I started getting a development team together and we started actually developing Photoshop plugins. So we've really advanced the world of frequency separation with our own proprietary plugin. If I may mention that real quick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we've been doing that since like 2017. It's called uh, NBP uh, retouch tools, Nino yeah. Batista photo NBP real creative, right? Um, <laughs> but we started with, <laughs> we started with a frequency separation plugin, which kind of makes everything uh, in that world more flexible and more powerful. And uh, it's it really evolved. That's been, that's been, it's not our flagship plugin anymore. That's been overtaken by another one. But it's to me like our main one, the impetus, like how can we reinvent this? And we did. So yeah, we have that one. I Hopefully I get you a copy if I haven't already. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, so or something, yeah. Why should I use that plugin versus like the old action, you know, like old dog, new tricks. Like I'm right? using my little like Photoshop action. I know how to use it. It's very fast. Why should I switch to the plugin? So the plugin is going to be, um, it's, you can get a good result with the action, make no mistake. And there's a million copies of the actions and variations of all kinds, right? Yeah. Um, but ours is, first of all, the, 
it's going to get a little technical for a second, but the algorithms that produce the frequency separation effect, which is going to be everything from the texture effect or the high and low layer frequency separation, that subtraction process is all really technical. Um, ours are proprietary. We're not using the filters in Photoshop. So it's what they call an external processor. And the upshot of all that is that we preserve more texture. We're really proud of our algorithm. So if you wow. use it, you get a little bit more texture preservation. And then you get previewing and more finite control, different wow. type of algorithms, different radiuses you can use. You can preview to see how it's looking. It, it's kind of like if you're brand new to frequency separation, the plugin and an action won't make a difference. So you won't understand it. For the people that are you know, a little newer to photography and maybe even you know, new to Photoshop, what is frequency separation? We're talking about this term soon. You and I, like we use it all the time. Right. But, um, but for someone that has no idea what we're talking about, how sure. would you explain that? So on the surface, when you first describe it to somebody, it sounds like it's too good to be true, and it is. But that means uh, the, the basics is that it allows you to set up your image in such a way that the texture, like finite texture on skin, is separated from the color, which is more of the blurry, softer, trend, they call transitions of the image. The upshot is that you can paint skin tone underneath texture right. which sounds like like again too good to be true right but it's the kind of tool that can be used and abused the wrong way but in a proper workflow it is powerful absolutely extremely powerful yeah for lots of things so using in and of itself is not a master solution especially if you abuse it but that's what it is is that you can paint underneath texture right right so so basically what you're saying is you know because whenever you think of like portraiture or something like that yeah. it, you can use it a little bit too heavy and then your skin just kind of looks like yeah. plastic almost yeah. but the the beauty of frequency separation is that you keep that texture so it doesn't look like like a barbie so much as like real skin just perfect skin that's exactly right yeah that's that's the upshot of it and because it's not um, and I'm not knocking portraiture, but it's not an automatic process that's trying to find eyes and face and forehead and noses and all that. Um, it's a tool that you can use exactly how you want to use it. And I love control. So yeah, right. <laughs> Who doesn't? So whenever you are using the plugin, do you paint it on like a mask or is it like you push it and then like you have control over like you paint it on or how does that work? It's literally just painting on. I mean, it, and for those who do know frequency separation, um, they might do a process that modifies the high layer directly, modifies the low layer directly, duplicating, cloning them, different blending modes. There's so many different variations. But my method is pretty straightforward. I literally paint on a blank layer between high and low, and I paint in the skin that I, that I want to correct, and the texture gets preserved. Now, this is after I've done appropriate dodge and burn, which is right. the main tool for what I like on skin cleanup. But frequency yeah. separation is a perfect final polish. So talk to me about that. Like, talk to me about the dodge and burn. Why is that your preferred tool over frequency separation? Well, you know, being able to dodge and burn or brighten and darken um, in specific areas uh, in a smart way using like curves, layers and things like that, which is a million, you know, tutorials on that on, on YouTube. Right. Um, but utilizing it the correct way is again, more control. I can brighten the dark area. And when I do it, I preserve the texture, which, we portrait retouchers are obsessed on texture. Um, right. So we preserve the texture by fixing these dark and light areas with dodge and burn. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it takes a lot more time, obviously. <laughs> but again, it's, it's a control thing. And that's what it's about. I, anything that's automated, like fix the face, click, you're probably not going to have a good result. Right, right. <laughs> so when you're doing dodge and burn, how do you know, 
what areas to lighten and what areas to darken. So without sounding like a, like somebody's old college professor, what I tell my students is practice. And I know it sounds kind of dismissive, but um, with practice, it'll become obvious because it is not a linear process like sawing a piece of wood in half. It's an artistic process and you have to get better at it. So you got to have thousands of hours of really shitty dodge and burn to get the idea. I can't tell you where because every shot's different. It has to come with practice. Right. <laughs> so whenever, so now since you're super experienced and you do this all the time, how long do you think it takes you to retouch an image from the very beginning to finish? How long would you say? So if you count in my work in Capture One, which is what I use for my raw processing, I don't okay. use Lightroom. Um, if you count Capture One, roughly. Um, unfortunately, my range is wild. I can knock out an image in 15 minutes and I can knock out an image in two hours. It just depends on what the shot needs and what I want. So it's a huge range, but I'm actually fairly efficient, all things considered. When yeah. I do my, my really like hard sunlight, hard light black and whites where I want the skin to be perfect head to toe, those are my two hour ones. Um, because I spend extra care getting the texture just right. But softer boudoirish type of images shot at F2, 15, 25 minutes tops. Right, right. And so for a newbie that's just starting out, because I remember when I first started retouching or, you know, and now I use um, Judy, who is my retoucher and I would die without her. But, um, <laughs> but literally if I had to sit there, I would probably sit there and like retouch for an hour, like two hours on every image. I would drive myself absolutely insane. Right. And I think that that's maybe a problem that most photographers have is they don't know when to stop. So. Yeah. What is it? What's some good advice that you have for people who might be like learning retouching in the beginning? How do you know when to stop? I think that the, the way to throttle yourself um, is going to be, like I said, pick those battles as a, if, if it's just an, an artistic vision for a project and you want the image perfect, you don't care what it costs. Well, you know, take 12 hours to edit it. That's fine. But when you're trying to deliver albums, when you have clients deadlines, you have things like that, you have to, and this is going to sound horrible, but for the most part, you have to scale back your standards a little bit, knowing that the difference between what the client's going to love and what you consider perfect is almost barely indistinguishable. Hmm. So you have to check yourself and go, I need to get this done so I can make money. Because if I'm spending two hours on a shot on an album for 40 people, for 40 images, excuse me, I'm not making any money. So it's not an issue of sacrificing per se. It's an issue of being realistic. Right. And so that's, that's, I say this because that's what I have to preach to myself. I'm horrible about spending way too much time on a project. And then I'm like, I haven't made any money on this. I spent 14 hours editing. Why did I do this? Right, so right, right. It's throttling yourself for the project. I tend to put more time into my personal work, for example. Right. sounds terrible. Clients, if you're listening, that's not trying to say that I half-ass you. But <laughs> I, I won't redo something and redo it and retest it. I'll just go, you know what? That is good enough. Next. Right. You right. Know? Yeah, so that's, that's important. I think that we get bogged down in details as creatives, as photographers. And that's why outsourcing my retouching was so helpful to me because otherwise I would, I would sit there for hours and hours and just mess with things. Um, and it's no longer really taboo to, um, to outsource. Let's say about five, 10 years ago, there was a lot of, Oh, you don't edit your images. Oh, there was a lot of that. You don't see that anymore. And of course the super, super high end commercial photographers outsource all the hardcore utility cleanup anyway. So it's really common. It's not uncommon at all. Right. Absolutely. So the new photographers starting out, you know, I think there's that learning curve where everyone starts with Lightroom and they like oversaturate and do like white vignettes and things like that. So 
What's your advice to like new photographers just starting out? Do you have any advice to them? In terms of retouching, um, first of all, don't be scared of Photoshop. Um, that's what a lot of people do. They think that Lightroom is then uh, the basics and then you step up to Photoshop. I think that's actually um, lying to yourself. Lightroom is not a basic Photoshop. They're completely different programs for completely different purposes. Photoshop can be very straightforward and very simple, but it can't be. But people have the idea that I'm basic, I just use Lightroom. No, get right into Photoshop. But um, I think what we have to, and I have some videos on my YouTube channel about this. You have to learn the tools first. You can't just be like, okay, I want to make this image perfect. You don't know what a layer is. We need to get you on that. And it's not that you're not capable, it's that you have to suck at something first. So right. learn the tools. Find the utilities out there that teach you the basics of Photoshop, not how to make an image perfect or a portrait perfect. You, you don't know how to do that yet. You got to learn the tools because I, I have taught many, many students who have been editing photos for two years. And then I say, adjustment layer mask. And they go, what's that? And I said, how have you been functioning for two years? And I'm not here to make fun of people. I'm just saying, learn the basics. Right, right, right. Yeah. No, I think that that's a great, you have to have the foundation before you can build a house, right? Yeah, that's it. So what do you feel like are the most foundational tools of Photoshop that people should start with? Well, in portrait retouching, you're going to live and die in the layers palette. That's what I tell people in my videos. That's what I tell people in my classes if you're brand new. Understand the layers palette, embrace it, blank, blank layers, adjustment layers, and masks. That is 75% of what you need to be doing in the rest of your workflow. So layers is like, if there was one thing to say, live and learn the layers palette because you're going to live there when you're editing. Yeah, yeah. That's great. That's good to know. I, I've been so out, so out of that world for so long because I shoot such high volume that um, you know, I, I can do it when I have to, but <laughs> I prefer not to. Right? So, yeah. So you shoot a lot and you travel a lot. Yeah. How do you, when you're traveling and shooting clients in these other locations, how do you book these clients? Like what are, what is, is it just, you know, word of mouth or are you, how are you getting your name out there? I mean, now obviously everyone knows who you are, but you know, how, how do you do that? Where do you even start? Well, you know, to start is hard because, um, well, the short answer really, I live on social media like a teenager um, and not just for funny memes, but um, for baby Yoda memes, but for, for work, because that's where I get most of my work from. And so I post, you know, that I'm right now, I'll post that I'm going to like Hawaii, like on Sunday um, right. and getting inquiries from there. And it's not like I get 80. I mean, these, sometimes these cities are harder than they sound. Um, but when you first get started for me anyway, I, when you think back on it, when I started traveling, because I, first of all, like to travel, so that was my business model, right. um, I just brazenly would say, I'm, I'm in Houston. So I'd be like, I'm going to Dallas, now booking. Very brazenly, because I, you know, I didn't have a name yeah. for myself. I didn't go there before. I just kept doing that stubbornly. I went to a lot of cities, losing money, uh, and I'd come back. But what happened was that in this traveling business model over time and sacrifice and just pushing it out there blindly, um, when you do travel exclusively for your work, you, yeah. create, you create a perhaps false, but still a sense of urgency because people are like, oh, you're here Friday through Monday. That's it. Unless right. I want to travel to you, this is my window. And right. that does create clients to respond because they're like, I, I want to work with this guy. I've been wanting to for six months, six years, whatever. He's going to be here. So how do I make this happen? And that urgency gets people to book to be honest yeah, with you. Right. So how many would you, do you normally try to book whenever you're on this location? Do, and do you only shoot one a day or do you shoot multiple? 
I try for one day, um, but it depends. I mean, I hate to sound so wishy-washy on this response, but it depends on what I'm doing. If I'm booked by an organization to be like a featured photographer at an event, I may not have time, period. So there's no bookings there. That's sh- that, that shoot, but that's my job is to be there for that. Other times um, I will book freely, openly, but I do try for just one a day, as spoiled as that sounds. Yeah. Um, Cause I may not shoot more than three hours, but I like to get up, get ready, get to the location, scout, plan. Right. I'm kind of spoiled in that regard. I'm not trying to do four sessions in a day. No. Right, right. No, I would be so brain dead if I, <laughs> I, when I first started, I would end up like doing like some, when I would travel on location, I would go and I would book like four in a day. Yeah. And by that four shoot, I, I literally wanted to die. I yeah. was, my brain was so tired. I just couldn't handle it. So how far in advance do you create your travel schedule? Like, do you know in the beginning of the year where you're going to head to, or do you just kind of like... Yeah, the the bigger trips I always plan further out because there's more to lose there, like yeah. Thailand. I have Thailand for um, November, and that's a long time because yeah. uh, getting there and getting back is expensive just in and of itself, so right. things like that. So the, the, the further away trips, more exotic trips, I plan months in advance. But right. what the other ones, the regional ones here in the States... There's a window. If I book six months out, I don't even market it yet because no one's going to book six months out in my genre, in my world. Right. The, the gravy kind of a Goldilocks zone is about one month. So yeah. about one month before I'm going to be somewhere, I start pushing hard. Before that, people go, oh, I'll get to you, you know, right. think about it. So I, I, I push hard about a month out from, from regional city. But yeah, I book far in advance. Uh, things happen and I have to improvise. But right now I have something once or twice a month until November. That's great. Thailand is going to be so cool. Yeah, I, I kind of went crazy this year on accepting invitations and making things happen because I'm being selfish and I want to travel. So I've got a lot of cool locations this year. <laughs> wrong with that. So where else are you going? Can I live vicariously? Um, probably have to open this to, to remind myself as terrible as that is. Uh, let's see. I'm going to Hawaii next week. Uh, April, Puerto Rico. September, Aruba. September, Jamaica. Huntington Beach, California, Chicago, Salt Lake City, Belize, Bali, um, and Panama City Beach, Florida. Yeah, that's later. That's also in April. And Las Vegas, uh, two weeks from now. Yeah. That's currently on the docket. I'll see you in Vegas. I'll be there. WPBI. Yeah, Yeah, I'll be there. Um, So that's an amazing year. Yeah, trying to keep it busy. Yeah, that sounds great. A lot of of bucket list items. (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. So... Um, I also think, you know, when I think of your work, I think a lot of like working with models and like glamour, like high fashion, things like that. So how do you find models to work with that, you know, match your aesthetic or that are easy to work with? Do you have any advice for photographers when you're working with models? Um, well, you mean like getting started on that or, or just yeah. doing it in general? Yeah, like, let's do both. Let's do maybe like getting started and then let's also do like, you know, just in general, like what advice do you have? Sure. Um, so if you're, if you're, depending on where you're coming from, if you've never worked with models before, but you've also um, never worked with subjects, like portrait subjects in general, yeah. um, it's, there's going to be a work, you have to build your way up and there's nothing, it's like, what they want to say, what was it called? Occam's razor. The simplest explanation for something that has a lot of explanations is usually the one that's right. So if your work is good enough, if your work is good enough, models will be interested in working with you. Yeah. There you go. And that's it. If your work is not good enough, then you may need to book some models. And I'll tell you what, by that I mean pay them. Right. Paying, paying some full-time models 
um, when you want to get your portfolio changed to go in that direction is some of the best investment in the world. It really, really is. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take too, too much. You don't need to pay $1,000 an hour or anything crazy, um, but you're going to get that result. And you're almost paying for training of yourself because if you're new to working with models, a pro model will teach you by default. They're not going to give you lessons, but you're going to learn from them while you shoot them. So you're like, wow, this is completely different than a boudoir client because, you know, boudoir clients never do this before or not often. Right, right. Very different sort of personal dynamic, whereas a pro model. So if you're new to shooting models, hire some. You're going to have a better standard. You're going to accelerate quicker. Now, I spent years booking every local, regional, either model or wannabe model for years, just trying to get collaborations in. Over time, I realized that when I'm working with someone who's way less experienced than me, this collaboration is not worth it. But if I paid pro models, you get what I'm saying? So it, the yeah. investment in yourself is not just for right. their benefit. It's also for yourself and you learn a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So how much would you expect to pay? Like what is a reasonable rate to pay a model? Well, if you're not, if you're not flying them in and they're not agency based, then you can probably, um, it's going to, I mean, very wildly, but I would say somewhere in the order of $50 an hour is about what you can expect. Some will be 150 or 250, but that's different level. But if, a, you know, if a model wants to come out for $50 for the entire day, they either really, really like your work or something's up. <laughs> right, right, right. So do you, I guess like, can you, so say a model, you want to work with someone and they're like $150 an hour. Can yeah. you like, not barter with them, but like, I don't know, try and like, uh, not talk them down, but get to a rate that might be more reasonable for you. Yeah. And you can negotiate freely. Remember these models, especially the ones that command $150 an hour are businesses. You have to remember that. Yeah. And so they're wondering apart from money, what's my benefit. So <laughs> if your work is really, really good, if you have a big social media following, if there's an opportunity they don't normally get, cool location or something like that, wardrobe designer on board. These are things that are going to motivate them to negotiate with you. Yeah. They're thinking, they're thinking business as well. So yeah. they're like, well, why do you want me to reduce my rate for what? What do right. I get? So it's just, that's, how, that's all it is. It's just like any artistic thing. I used to be a pro musician. If I'm going to do a gig, you're going to pay me in beer. I don't care about that. Yeah. But a big venue for free. Oh, that actually might be cool. I know we get all get sensitive about working for exposure and all. Right, that. right. We all have to make that decision at some point multiple times. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, give, give the model something more, not just, hey, I have a camera. So, so do you and everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, whenever you work with a model and you're paying them, do you still give them the images that you shoot after their retouch? Yeah, to a, to a degree. Um, I will give, if I'm paying a model, usually when I pay a model it's for a workshop, I'll pay her because I need her for my workshop, but I also mm -hmm. shoot her. Um, that's at least these days. Um, and if I do, I'm the business, again, business arrangement is there. They get money. So I, you know, my agreement up front is that you may not get an image or you might get just two or something like that, but I know that they're getting compensated. So yeah, I will, but I'm not going to be like deliver 15, 16 edits if I'm paying them now, because not just on principle, don't get me wrong, but on time. Now, if something ends up amazing and I want to submit it to a magazine, that's a whole different story. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, you have to be flexible. This hard and fast. I never do collabs. I don't buy into that. Yeah. Um, so what was the one that you just did? You just, you just shot some girl. It was in the desert and there was like a, it was a purse store in front. What oh, was it was that? a Prada store. That was so cool. What in the world was that? Was it like an actual Prada store in the middle of the desert or so, how did yes. you find this? 
some people know about it, some people don't. Um, but it's a Prada uh, art installation by these two artists. I believe they're European. They do a lot of installations like yeah. this. And it is literally on a desolate straight road in West rural Texas in the middle of nowhere. It's completely sealed. The items inside are real Prada, um, but it's an art installation. It lights up at night. And it's been kind of, I love to shoot in the Southwest and the deserts. I'm putting together a book about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, hopefully it'll be out in the summer. So Prada Marfa was a bucket list item. And on the way to El Paso recently with um, a buddy of mine and a model that I work with a lot, um, we said, should we detour a little bit and go see Prada Marfa? Yeah. So we did, and um, that was a lot of fun. It was cold, but she was a trooper because all her outfits were not conducive to cold weather. Yeah. Um, ended up being picked up by FHM USA, and they, they published that set. And it was, a, again, a, a, a bucket list item for me. And it caused a lot of questions because some people know what it is. Prada Marfa is the art installation. Other people are like, like you, is that an actual store? And if you saw where it was, it is in the middle of nowhere. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, we <laughs> saw each other at the AIPP retreat this year. And then I was like, well, I know he's like somewhere close. So where in the world was it? And I was just, you know, on the river walk. We were, you know, all naked on the river walk. <laughs> and I'm like, there's Nino. He found a Prada store in the middle of the desert. Of course he did. Why? Right, of course. <laughs> it's been out there for a while. It was one of those things. I think it came out in 05 or 06 and it got vandalized a lot. But eventually people left it alone so yeah well, that pretty was, cool <laughs> yeah, that was really cool so you speak at a lot of conferences you go to a lot of conferences um so you have wppi coming up and then you know what's after that tell me more about like your your workshop schedule your conference schedule things like that so i stepped away from conferences for a couple of years i completely walked away from shutterfest i did it for five years it just wasn't me anymore. Yeah. Um, and so I walked away from Shutterfest completely. And then I got approached by ClickCon in Chicago, the new one came out last summer and they're doing this summer. Uh, WPPI stepped away for a couple of years having the last conversation I had with them about three years ago was supposed to be this last second thing they want to put together, but it didn't happen. Anyway, long story short, this year and going into 2021, I'm back on the conference focus. So I'm back on the teaching circuit. Uh, I already told WPPI and PPE that I'm going to be you know sending some class ideas and applying and, and I think they're going to want to use me next year the photography show in London or near London um, February 2 2021 I'm doing that um, wow. so I'm, I'm trying to get back on the conference circuit fully because I took a couple of breaks after I was burned out and now I'm excited about it again so yeah. I am going to WPPI in a couple of weeks but I am not speaking at WPPI this year I'm oh. there for other things I just happen to be there during that I mean because it's Vegas Right, exactly. We go to Vegas, right? It's like the best part of our job. We can be like, oh, you know, I'm just going to head out to Vegas for a week. Yeah, just, just to work, you understand. Yeah, you work with your clients, but I mean, it's all work. I'm totally going for work. Totally working, absolutely. Focus on work. So for, you know, some of our listeners that may be like on the different side of, you know, kind of been in the business for a while and want to start speaking at conferences, because this is something you're really good at. You've done it a lot. You've spoken at a lot of conferences, even teaching for a while. What kind of advice do you have for those photographers that are on that end of the spectrum that want to really get into teaching more, especially in speaking at conferences? Because it's overwhelming. It really is. I think that's the key though, right there, what you just said is that, which goes to my point, in that when you want to be into teaching in any genre in the arts, um, simple, you got to want to. In other words, don't chase it thinking it's some quick money if you hate doing it. Don't chase it if you think I can make a couple of quick bucks off my fellow photographers because you're going to hate it and yourself. Because doing it once or twice, one of the most things I hear from photographers who give their first workshops is, oh man, I did it, but that was 
that killed me. I don't think I can ever do that again. You know, to, to do it 200 times like I have, that requires like a genuine interest. I like it. I like people. I like talking. Can you tell? So for me, for me, I enjoy it. Yeah, you know, you have some train wrecks. It's business. You have some times where you're, you know, you face plant. That's fine. But enjoy it, like it, want it. That's the first thing because everything else comes natural. You're going to, people are going to speak good about you. They're going to get excited. They're going to talk about you. Conferences will reach out if you're good at what you do. If you're just trying to stand in front of a crowd for three hours and babble about yourself because you hate being there, why do it? So enjoy it. And I think everything else comes natural after that because people need to learn something. Your work can be great, but you may not be worth a dang at teaching. So if you really, really love it, I think everything comes naturally and I love it. Yeah, I, that's so true. You see like so many educators out there and whenever we talk to people my ma- about my mastermind course, I always say like, that's one of the things that sets me apart is because I used to be a speech pathologist, so I actually know how to teach there you go. and I like teaching. And, you know, I think that that's something that when, you know, when you see a lot of educators, sometimes you can tell like they, they just don't like it. Or they, just they don't. Yeah. Like- they go through the motions. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I wasn't even kidding when I said talk about yourself for three hours. One of the most common things I hear from photographers when they're complimenting my workshop, which I'm happy about, but you know, they take a shot at a previous one. I won't say any names. And they're like, I literally paid $1,500 to go listen to her talk about herself for three hours and then they send us home. I hear that repeated so often. And I'm like, well, that sucks. <laughs> it's kind of like, um, you know, because I have a master's of science, so, you know, I've been through a lot of college courses. And that first class, you always have to sit there and listen to the professor talk about the syllabus for like an hour and a half. And you're like, dude, I wouldn't have gotten into a master's program if I couldn't read. Like, yeah. I read, you know. So I totally agree. Like, when people are coming to, like, listen to speech, the last thing they want to hear you talk about is yourself. Right. Let me tell you everything that I've accomplished. That's why they're there. They know what you've accomplished. Right. What are they gaining from it? You know, and no, you can't win everyone, but if you have a good 90, 95% success rate, people will talk about you and that'll keep going from there. But like I said, if you don't genuinely want to do it, you won't last and people will respond negatively and you're going to feel this is too hard. No, you just don't like it. And it's okay if you don't like it, right. it's not for everyone. Right. So, you know, we're, we're talking about WPPI, talking about conferences, and there's probably people listening that maybe have never been to a conference or maybe want to go to a conference. What are some of your, um, maybe your, what's some good pieces of advice for people that have never been to a conference, but maybe want to go? I think that the key thing is, you know, the conference is always going to advertise. They have to keep themselves alive. So they're going to advertise the marketing, the sponsors, the floor, the expo, the products, the new yeah, yeah, fine. Go look at it. Go ooh and ah, the new gear. Enjoy it. Cool. But the networking, because yeah. you can go to WPPI and run into somebody who's going to be a catalyst for something else that's going to lead to something else. These opportunities to network are far more important than anything they're selling on the expo floor. Mm-hmm. Um, way more important. And those offsite meetings, shoots, projects, get out there and rub some elbows. Yeah, I know some people are terminally shy. I'm not one of those people, but I know some people are. Right. But that like if you're good at your work and you do well and you're wondering why I can't get opportunities, go to conferences, talk to people because you never know what opportunities you may find. If you sit in your house all day and stare at your screen looking at the latest product announcements. So that's to me what conferences is for. It's a way to get these like-minded individuals together and you can capitalize on the networking. That to me is the number one. 
That's really good advice. And I think so many of us, like we're so spread out, we're used to working by ourselves. And so when we get to a conference, we're like, oh my gosh, there's so many people, there's people everywhere. And like, you know, you want to like draw in, but it, it's good to like push yourself out of your shell a little bit and like do a little bit more. And, you know, while we're on the topic of conferences, what about competitions? What do you think about those, like the print competitions and things like that? Because I'll tell you what, that is super overwhelming. Like even I've been in this game for a long time and yeah. I I am overwhelmed by competitions myself. Well, I mean, having, I've, never, I've not done one in my photography era, but growing up with my dad, as I said at the beginning of all this, um, he, I saw him do many. He even ran um, a photography club in the 80s, and they had little small competitions, not major conference ones. Yeah. Um, and I experienced that. And can I say something controversial? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm against the competitions. I don't yeah. think it's a good idea. I think that people get too far wrapped up in it. They put too much importance on the meaning behind it, and they put too much focus on winning and or losing we're already artists we wear our heart in our sleeves so to have others judge us and determine our worth on that second place ribbon or third place ribbon or no placing at all i've seen people get completely crushed and so i'm not saying the competitions are doing anything wrong i'm saying people take them the wrong way or take them too seriously throw an image or two in see what happens but don't worry about it people sweat and 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 freak out about it and i think that's very unhealthy as an artist to do that i love that i've actually never done a competition because I've been too busy to figure it out. And also, I'm a little bit more focused on what my clients think of my work. And that's, and that's I, think, um, I think there's like the two sides to our industry, right? The business-sided people and then the creative-sided people. And I'm definitely more on the business side and less on the creative. But because of that reason, I, I always think, oh, if I entered one of those companies, I would just get killed because... I'm not, you know, I'm not super technically strong and things like that. So, um, yeah, that's really interesting. And I, 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 I think that I tend to agree with that viewpoint. So I don't know exactly how controversial it'll be because I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's, like I said, I don't want to blame the competitions themselves. I think people's perception of the competition. But I will say this, that at least in the commercial world, um, and I'm not fully into the commercial world, but in the commercial world, your commercial clients are zero impressed by your Instagram account saying award-winning photographer. Yeah. Okay. Everyone's award-winning. Right. They want to see your portfolio. They want to see that you can get stuff done. They want to see that you're publishable on a regular and they want to see that your work in general is solid award-winning photographer. No one cares. So if you're after that title, I think you might have the wrong focus. You need to focus on making your work satisfied to you, of course, but industry caliber in general. Yeah, that's some great advice. So, you know, going back to what you said that that one, the shoot or that set was picked up by FHM. Is that mm-hmm. what you? Yeah. So, how does that happen? How did that? Do you submit them? Like, what's that process like? So, it's a different sort of world in in publications these days. At least in my genre, I can't speak for high fashion specifically. I do mostly glamour, editorial glamour, and I also can't speak for. Um, well, any other genre of photography landscape or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it has changed quite a bit. So the reason why, quote unquote, FHM picked it up is because I've worked with them before, submitted in, uh, work to them before. And the, uh, the, the, the publishing company, the parent company that owns them and others, I've worked with them as well in different international Playboy editions. So I have a relationship. It wasn't a cold call. Um, and, but building those relationships is, is the challenge. And that's what everybody always asks. And none of it's guaranteed. But that goes back to what I was talking about before that 
the simple answer, if your work is good enough, people will talk, people will notice, and get to those conferences and network because that one person, my very first Playboy cover about five years ago now, almost six, um, the model had been scheduled and booked for the cover. She'd been slated for it, and she needed a photographer. Well, she happened to like my work. One referral led to another. She contacted me cold and said, can you come to Austin and do this? I said, no, I'm in Dallas because I was in Dallas that weekend, and she came to Dallas. My work and my networking is why she reached out to me. I didn't make that opportunity happen. She yeah. did, but I was out there rubbing elbows, right? right? And it snowballs from there. So again, going back to that networking thing and conferences are one great way to do it. Yeah, I love that. That's Unless, of course, like I said, if, you're, if your focus is to be the best quinceanera photographer in Houston, I happen to know one who does really well here, um, he doesn't need to go anywhere. He gets all his work in the surrounding area of Houston, makes way into six figures a year on it, one of the best in the city, that's his business model. Mine is commercial work and traveling. That's my business model. So I can't say there's only one way, you know, right. to do things. There's lots of different ways. And I love that you keep bringing up networking. I think that's so important. And I think it's something that in this digital era that we live in, people forget about like the face-to-face -face marketing. Yeah. And, um, and I think that people are often intimidated by it because we're so used to like looking at a screen. And so, you know, do you have any advice for people that, you know, we all know we need to do it, but how do you like kind of push yourself out of that box and, you know, kind of get yourself out there? And I think, well, <laughs> I think that, um, you know, a little bit of old school doesn't hurt. And what I mean by that is that FaceTime, and I don't mean Apple FaceTime, I mean like talking to people, which yeah. is where the networking is important. Five minutes talking to somebody can tell them everything they need to know about your personality and you got the job. Whereas 15 emails back and forth for a month may not do it. So, yeah, I'm not the kind of guy who loves phone calls. If you cold call me, I'm probably going to ask you to text me first. Yes, but at the same time. Noted. Uh, <laughs> what's that? Noted, I said. Exactly. You know, if I don't know who you are and I have a number, I'm not going to answer. That's, that's the new way of doing things as much as suicidal as that sounds um, right. in business. But I think that, that again, that, that, that FaceTime, that real talking with somebody, if you can meet someone for five minutes, 10 minutes, even digital like we're doing now, that kind of conversation because they realize – you know, I got a good feeling about this guy, especially in my genre of glamour. Glamour photographers have terrible relation, uh, reputations. So, right. you know, oh, it's one of those guys. He shoots bikini models. I know what he's like. Well, yeah. give me 10 minutes. I guarantee you, you'll find someone else that you think. You know, you won't, I'm not the same guy you think I am. So, and that can lead to work. So, right. interpersonal FaceTime, shake hands. And yes, I know some people are horribly shy, and I get it. My daughter's one of them. She's about to be 16, and she doesn't like talking to anybody. Yeah. Um, I'm not that guy, so I have that benefit. But if you can try, make those sh handshakes, you know? <laughs> yeah, I love that. And that's, my dad was a photographer. He was a wedding photographer back in the 80s, too. And my parents were divorced, and so I would go along. On his weekends, I would go to weddings with him. And yeah. he would actually stick me in the balcony with, like, the shutter release. And, like, <laughs> there, and I would, like, click the shutter. Yeah. Um, but I remember he'd have cards. Like, he'd put his pictures on the back, like, on cards, and he would just, hand them out to everyone and just talk to people. Yeah. And, um, and you know, now that I'm in the same industry, I look back and I'm like, wow, like, how did you book? It's crazy to me thinking like you booked, you worked full time, you know, doing this job and Facebook ads wasn't, you know, that wasn't a thing. And right. all these like tools that we use now in the industry, like they weren't a thing then. So it yeah, was exactly. And I, I like social media because it, to me, marketing locally and marketing nationally are almost the same on social media. Right. So I thought I'll take advantage of that because I'm not going to be 
sitting here shooting commercial glamour in Houston for a living. That's not going to work. So I, I enjoy the fact that I can say I'm going to Omaha or Seattle and it's almost the same as the old school ways of marketing locally. I couldn't imagine trying to travel nationally in 1990 doing this. Right. <laughs> yeah, it would have been nearly impossible. Like there's no, you'd have to get in the white pages there. Yeah, something. <laughs> yeah, so this has been so great. Um, thank you so much for your time. So if people wanted to find you or follow you or, you know, see some of your work, where could they, where could they see you at? Where could they find you? Luckily, I have a unique name. So uh, Nina Batista, type into Google and everything shows up. But if you want to go to ninabatista.com, that's a good start. I don't do tons of different social medias. I do Facebook and Instagram. So, but again, I have a unique name. So go to Google, type it in. You can't miss it. <laughs> and then on Instagram, what's your Instagram handle? It's just Nina Batista. Oh, One word. Jeez, that's great. There's so many Jennifer Smiths out there. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty generic name. I hate to say it. I'm going to go by Jen Bruno Smith. So I can that's how I know you. I mean, that's a cool name. It's my maiden name. Bruno was my maiden name. So I just kind of, I kept it in there. And I don't know. My yeah, husband jokes that he wishes he had that name. <laughs> Right? I'm lucky in that regard. I don't have a middle name, and Nina Batista is very unique. If I were Joe Brown, I might have some Google issues. <laughs> this has been so great. Thank you so much for chatting. It's been so helpful. Hopefully our listeners have really learned a lot from this, and I will see you in Vegas in a few weeks for WPPI. That's right. I'll be there on the 22nd. Awesome. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have any questions, you can find me on the High Rollers Club. You can find Nino at ninobatista.com. Right? Got it. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.